Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, and I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. Dear 20-something started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful woman they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts we process internally, Dear 20-something is a space where listeners can hear insights, ask questions, and ultimately get advice from the woman they most admire. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Laura Stein. Laura Stein is the co-founder and CEO of BOMA Global. Prior to founding BOMA, Laura was the executive director of Women's March Global, where she built the Women's March Global platform and oversaw all Women's March initiatives outside of the US. Previously, Ms. Stein was managing director of global development at Singularity University, responsible for Singularity University's global expansion and implementation of vision and strategy. Prior to her time at SU, Laura was the founder and director of the TEDx program at the TED conferences, creating and leading the effort to bring TED to the world by developing a program that granted free licenses to third parties to organize independent TED-like events. Stein also currently sits on the board of Equality Now, dedicated to creating a more just world for women and girls, and Lalela, a nonprofit dedicated to education through the arts in South Africa. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you all now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Laura Stein. Thank you for having me. Um, it's my first time on Fireside, so I'm still working it out, but thank you. Oh, very exciting. Well, welcome to Fireside. We're happy to have you, and thank you so much for being on the show. So we like to start the show with a fun and light question. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, what is something new you learned this week? It can be a new business you're excited about, an interesting fact you learned from a book or article, or maybe it was a conversation you had with someone that made you see something differently. Wow. Well, I've learned so much this week, but uh, today I had a really, my first in-person meeting since coming out of COVID with a old, a ex-TED fellow that I've known for years. And I've been looking for a solution that combines sort of community platforms with event platforms with LMSs, learning management systems and there's nothing that does all these things and then I met with this Ted fellow today who has this really cool kind of combination of all of that that sort of a non-commercial Facebook meets an LMS meets an event platform meets a cool community platform so I was excited by that. That's so exciting. Did you know before meeting with them that they had that platform or was it just serendipitous? No, I'd, I'd bumped into another TED fellow again at the MoMA, my first outing to a museum in a long time. And she was like telling me a little bit about this. So I was like, wow, I've been looking for something like that. And lots of people in these sort of ecosystems I know are looking for something like that. So it was sort of interesting. I was, you know, I, again, it was like my first venture out and it was exciting. That's so awesome. Yeah, we're all having our first ventures out, you know, and in Los Angeles specifically, today's our our first day of no masks. Do you see your TED fellows often? Do you get to chat with them quite a bit or is it just sort of spontaneously you'll run into them? Well, obviously during COVID it was hard. You know, I live in the world of ideas and a lot of what I do is about how do we make both intentional and serendipitous connections between people who are doing interesting things on the planet but obviously during covid that was sort of 
you know, confined to the world of Zoom, which, you know, at the beginning was kind of a novelty, but the novelty sort of wore off. So, uh, you know, we're all just trickling back into this world of, you know, human connections. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any tips for keeping up with people intentionally that you may not spontaneously run into? Yeah, I mean, we live in an extraordinary time where obviously, you know, when I first started out my career, we didn't have any of the social media platforms. I I don't think I'm the best at it. I mean, I have an amazing global network of people who I love and respect around the planet. And yet I find living on social media sometimes kind of less than fulfilling and a bit depressing. I really like having intellectual energetic conversations with people in person. And so we do live in this time where we can connect with anybody and we can stay connected to anybody. Um, But I don't know that I'm the best at it. You know, it's been hard for the past year or so, like you said, to, you know, connect with people because all we have had is social media and all we have had is virtual conferences and things like that. So um, you and me both, we're excited to get in person again and and start seeing people because you know, social media isn't always the, be- the most fulfilling place for that. Um, and it's so nice to get that face-to-face interaction, like you said. Yeah. We're going to take it all the way back to the very beginning. When you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? So from when I was about four to when I was about 19, I thought I was going to be a ballet dancer. Um, I went to the only sort of high school that's sort of like the fame high school of South Africa. It was audition only. And, um, was for music and dancing and um, I thought I was going to be a ballet dancer. So my first love was ballet. My passion was ballet. I trained six hours a day right through high school and did all my high school work. And, um, And then I left South Africa on a scholarship to dance and study. And I had a, after that scholarship was over, I had a choice to either go back to South Africa and join a ballet company or stay in America. And I think I felt very stifled by growing up at the tip of Africa in, during apartheid. And so I made the hard decision to give up my passion, which at the time was ballet and stay in America and um, study. Wow. That's incredible. And being a ballerina, do you take a lot of those learnings into what you do now? Yeah, I don't think for a very long time I thought about it, you know. It's just it definitely informed who I was. And I think what was amazing about something like ballet is you have to be in it 100%, like there's no in-between. And so I think that work ethic I've sort of taken with me everywhere I've gone. But there are definitely in, you know, in retrospect when I look back, and it's only more recently that I've even done that, it's, you know, there was a sense of um, technique and rigor and yet creativity. It's sort of you had to bring it all to bear. You had to be very fit, you know, and so um, you had to be disciplined. And as I said, there was no half. It was it was 100. And, and I guess the harder part about ballet is that it's also – there's this perfection of your body that unless you have it, you can't be a great dancer. So it's a weird intersection of a lot of things coming together to make a great ballet dancer. And it's hard. It's like you're striving for this perfection, but you will never, ever get there. Yeah, absolutely. And do you ever spend time wondering what your life would have been like if you had joined a ballet company? Sometimes we can wonder what if, and do you ever think about that time and wonder what your life would have been like if you had stayed in South Africa and decided to continue and join a company and 
Do you ever think about that? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely, I do. And I, you know, I think I made the right decision. I think the life of a an artist and a ballet dancer, unless you really are, you know, best of breed, is a is is a hard lifestyle choice. And sure, you're living your passion, but I think at the time it was probably. I mean, I've had some hard transitions in my life, but it was a very hard transition out of being a dancer, having done it with everything I had into, you know, not doing it. And so I look back on it and think, yeah, that transition, I learned a lot from it. It was really difficult. Um, but I guess I used that time. I've used that time and how difficult it was in other ways since then. And it was the right decision in that I didn't want to be living in apartheid South Africa. And I, now in retrospect, you know, life of an artist and a dancer is a hard life. And I wasn't ever going to be Baryshnikov or the female version of Baryshnikov. So I feel like I made the right decision. I mean, if you look at the ballet world right now, the only one woman who's in any kind of leadership position is Wendy Wheeland. And she's not, she's a co-leader, you know? And so it's hard for um, women to transition in their career as a ballerina into something more than a ballerina. That transition is very difficult. Yeah. And it's so hard to know that, you know, and see that when you're younger, because you have this passion and you're good at it and you want to continue doing it. But it, it's only with looking back, you know, that you made the right decision. So how did you make that decision? Were there certain people that you went to that really helped clarify what you should do? You know, when you're at a crossroads, even now, who do you go to? Do you turn to yourself? Do you turn to your support system? How do you make those really tough calls? Yeah, I tend to look internally and kind of follow my instinct. I'm just that kind of person. Like I do, def I definitely get input. In that point in time, I didn't really, at that decision point, I didn't get a lot of input from anybody. I just knew I didn't want to go back to South Africa. I was sort of on this grand adventure and I was young and starstruck by America. I'd lived in South Africa all these years and I was just on an adventure, you know? And so other decisions, obviously I take inputs from people, but I often tend to revert back to my instinct and like, you know, what I really believe in that moment is the right thing to do after looking at all the inputs that's amazing. It sounds like that's what you did at that time, too. So you talk about your grand adventure. I know you then went to Emerson College, which is a wonderful school in Boston. I'd love to know more about why you decided that school and a little bit about your time there. Yeah, well, I, you know, I was alone in America. My parents couldn't really afford to send me to college, so I didn't have a lot of options. And so I landed up staying with a through connections with a family in Boston for a period of time and applied to Emerson and got in. I'm not sure ultimately it was the perfect school for me and I landed up putting myself through college, so I worked throughout college. Um, and so, you know, it was more, I wanted to get a degree, but, uh, you know, I didn't have a huge support system and um, that's sort of where I landed up. It was definitely more serendipitous than intentional. I think... If I look back at that time, I was at school, but I was also, I, I had a couple of jobs. One of them was working for WGBH TV as an associate producer. And I think I definitely got more from my job at um, WGBH and learned more um, on the ground than I probably at the time was getting from my college career and you know WGBH was a unique environment and that it was 
the public TV station in Boston. It was super intellectual. It created Nova, it created Frontline. I was in the children's division, but I had access to all these really interesting people um, that were producing all these amazing shows, you know, for public television. And it was a very stimulating and intellectual milieu. And I took a lot from it and I met a lot of amazing people. And so in some ways, my work kind of felt like it was more enriching than my school and, you know, being on campus. And I was hanging out with all these cool adults that were doing all these extraordinary things. That's incredible. Yeah, I find that a lot of people in college get a lot more value out of their work experience. And it sounds like that was the case for you. I'm curious, you came from being a ballerina in South Africa, and then you come to America and you land in a production job. How did you know that production was something you wanted to do? And what enticed you about that opportunity? Yeah, I don't think it was that deliberate, but my first job wasn't that. My first job, I was actually working as a PA in a video post-production company um, in Boston. And they were doing a series for Simon and Schuster. Um, There was an educational series on a series of books. And it was everything from like many Ken Burns documentaries to music videos. It was an educational K through 12 series that they were bringing to life, book series that they were bringing to life. And so I started off in this, like the bottom of the rung, I soon was like choreographing videos. I was learning how to edit. I was um, like, I just used that moment to absorb and learn absolutely everything I could. And it was kind of a good um, opportunity to do that because there was so much going on, including like, you know, learning how to film things. And they sort of opened up I, anything I wanted to try. I could sort of try because it, it was a huge series and there's so many. We, would do, we did shoots in the middle of the Boston Harbor and I played a whole lot of different roles. And so I kind of learned the production, um, video and TV production from A to Z through that series. So again, like my experience there was like greater than anything I was getting at Emerson College for sure in that moment. And then I went on there was a position at WGBH and then I applied for it and got that position. So um, I don't think I knew what I wanted to do. I mean, my background was I was creative. I, you know, and I was studying communications and I wasn't sure what I wanted. It was more, I was, you know, I sort of fell into it. That's amazing. But it sounds like it really worked out because you went on to have a series of different production jobs and, start to figure out what you like. Yeah, and I think at that time, I kind of thought I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. I didn't really know, you know, but again, you can't make a living of documentary filmmaking. And I think right throughout that whole period, I thought I wanted to tell stories and be a documentary filmmaker. And so this, at least when I was at Emerson, this was sort of a path towards that. Absolutely. So after you were at WGBH in Boston, what was next for you? What was your next role in your 20s? After WGBH, I had met two great guys, Danny Schechter and Rory O'Connor, and they had a show called South Africa Now, and I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. And so it was a time, which is hard to even imagine now, but if you were broadcasting something on TV, it had to be broadcast quality, and the technology had just got to a point where you could have these little webcams um, that were actually broadcast quality. So they gave me a webcam and I wanted to go back and spend time with my family. And I landed up reporting for, for South Africa now from South Africa and collecting these stories about uh, apartheid. 
and then it was hard to get the footage out of the country, but like work with their network to get the footage out of the country. And so I spent six months on the ground in South Africa, really working sort of as a journalist and reporter, capturing everything from AWB rallies, which were sort of akin to the neo-Nazi party, to working with some of the um, organizations that are akin to like the Guardian newspaper and NPR and following stories, but capturing them on video for this show called South Africa Now that was really meant to be showing behind the scenes of apartheid and sort of moving towards the end of apartheid and the stories coming out of that um, struggle. Wow. How was that going back to South Africa after spending so much time at college and then right after college in America? What was that experience like for you? Well, I had family there, so I'd go back there frequently, but for short periods of time. And so this was a long period of time that I spent back there and I lived in my my family, obviously. But it was it was a little crazy because my family didn't really know what I was doing. And there were definitely some moments I worked with um, one of the newspapers there to go to the Mozambique border and there was a um, sort of indentured labor kind of slave trade happening between Mozambique that had been through this terrible civil war where they were bringing, um, you know, indentured laborers into South Africa to work on the farms. And so we sort of bought a slave. I mean, the, the newspaper and I went along on the journey and we brought them back to South Africa and sort of hadn't thought ahead as to, well, once we have these people in South Africa, like what are we going to actually do? do with them once we broke the story. So they actually used to end up living with my family for a period of time. And my mother saw the, the, um, the, the, the story on the front page of the newspaper before I actually told her who these people were. So there were some crazy moments. I mean, I was nearly shot at. I was like, it definitely was a crazy 20-something story. And um, it was definitely, I learned a lot. And it was a intense six months. You know, I um, ended up dating somebody who later was one of the journalists of a famous documentary called The Bang Bang Club, which was a group of journalists that their whole lives were work, they were war journalists. And by the end of um, apartheid, most of them were dead. And I dated one of them. So it was a sort of a, a crazy 20 something story. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I can imagine that was definitely a very formative time for you but I'm glad you had your family there as your support system. And yeah, I mean, they were always, the, I was, my family was always there for me. And I think that was sort of the strength in what I was able to do. They, were not, they couldn't always be there for me financially because they didn't have the means to support me in the US, but they were always there for me if I needed them. And I think what I took away, my mother always said, you know, follow your passion, do whatever makes you happy in life. And I think that's, a message that I've carried with me. Like, how do you make your life meaningful? And it's about following what you love to do. I love that. It's about enjoying the journey. And it sounds like that's a lot of what you've done. So you leave South Africa and then you came back to America. What was your then your next role? Well, I always thought I would come back to America. It was just, I thought I wanted to be in the entertainment industry. You know, I thought I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker, but I couldn't support myself being a documentary filmmaker. So then I thought I wanted to be in the entertainment industry. And so I went, I thought, if you want to be in the entertainment world, you've got to go to LA. And I thought, well, based on my background at WGBH, and I had all this experience, I thought I had some experience that I could easily go to LA and be hired. But LA is definitely a city of who you know. And if you know people, you get jobs, and I knew nobody. So I had a, you know, I had some experience, but um, 
it definitely took me a while and I did a lot of production work for the first few months. Um, I landed up working in um, development at um, Lifetime Television, which was the women's channel, which um, ironically was probably the least support I've ever got from women above me, but it was an interesting experience. Um, I, you know, I read scripts and wrote reports and, um, and then I got this job at an animation company where there was an older individual who was running the licensing department as a consultant and he brought me on board and said, you know what, um, you know, I'll teach you what it means to sort of build a franchise and run a licensing department. And so I sort of grew into that job and then landed up actually running the licensing department for this animation company, which in essence wasn't what my, it wasn't, it wasn't my dream, but it was definitely a amazing learning experience in that it was at the early days of how do you take IP and turn it into a global franchise? And so it was, you know, when Star Wars was in its infancy, which was the first film that really took this idea of how do you build a, not just a film, but an entire franchise around some IP. And so what I learned was, well, how do you take that, that IP and then do everything from you know, T-shirt licensing all the way through to DVD licensing. And again, like the internet didn't exist in those days, but how do you build out a global franchise around um, a particular, um, you know, series of characters or um, movies or TV shows? And so it was a good experience And how do you build a global franchise? And, and it was sort of my first foray into the business world. I didn't have an MBA. I didn't have a lot of business background and it definitely was a crash course. That's amazing. Did you find that you enjoyed doing a lot of the business side of things? I know your intention was to get into entertainment and do more production. Were you sad to let that part of yourself go and let that part of your dream go? Or were you excited about the business side of things and committing to that route moving forward? Look, I've always been curious about learning new things. And so my mantra has always been, may I live an interesting life. So for the first several months, when it was still fresh and unique, it was interesting. I went to every licensing conference on the planet. I went to the magic show. I went to, you know, every trade show imaginable. But sort of after I'd done it once or twice, like two years into it, it, it was less interesting to me. You know, it was like, oh, I've figured out how to do this. This is interesting for the moment. And and so the only part of it that I held on to, it was sort of the very early days of DVD licensing and the internet was just starting. And I was the part that intrigued me was the, the tech licensing part because we were doing joint ventures with the likes of Crystal Dynamics and some of the big gaming companies, we were jointly developing IP and 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 we developed the TV series and they developed the DVD and we'd um, um, sh you know share in the development expenses and then build out the franchise together. And so that was interesting to me. I went an offside one time where I was sort of the bridge builder between sort of the tech writers, the creative writers, the DVD writers, the TV script writers. And it was, how do we make this work for everybody? And how do we build this franchise into an interesting product? And how do we, and the joke, right? And it was, so there were pieces of it that were interesting to me as we went deeper into the tech licensing. And I ultimately landed up going further and further in that direction because that was the only part of it that didn't feel you know, that I felt like I kept learning. 
Have you found that when you're in your career and things stop feeling interesting, how do you balance that? Because I think a lot of people, the dream is to have a career that is interesting, have a life that is interesting. But sometimes things can get stale. Like you said, after a few trade shows, maybe it wasn't as exciting anymore. Yeah, I think that's where I sort of have, it's pretty unequal. Like that's, if it's no longer, if I'm no longer learning and I no longer feel stimulated and I no longer feel like it's interesting to me, I generally try to find a way out. Like I will either transition out or I'll, find something else to do within the organization. If there's nothing else to do within the organization, you know, I've quit and I'll take a sabbatical and I'll go to Egypt. Like I, it's harder to do, obviously. It's easier to do when you're younger and you have no responsibility and you have no, you know, you don't have children and you don't have things with, that are driving you to make different decisions. Um, as you get older, obviously it becomes more complex because you've got to balance security and your life with the decisions you make. But generally speaking, I have had very little patience if I'm not learning. I actually can't actually, you know, it's, it's something that doesn't work for me. I love that advice. And I think I sometimes struggle with that a little bit too. I, I don't always have patience for things if I'm not learning, but I love the idea. Just take on new responsibility or quit and go to Egypt if you want to and do it, especially while you're young and while you're in your 20s. Yeah, I would say that. Take the risks when you can take the risks, right? Like, you know, at college, take every risk imaginable. And when you leave college, build on that because there's going to come a time in your life where it's harder to take those risks. So if you could say one thing to every 20-something in the world, what would you tell them? Is it that piece of advice right there to take risks? Take risks while you can. Take risks and everybody is a leader. You know, follow your instinct. Believe in who you are and what you are and be willing to, to step up, right? You, I wasn't a born leader and I still feel like I have imposter syndrome sometimes. And so, you know, lean in and believe you can do it and take those risks while you can still and learn as much as you can along the way. And also find your mentors, find people who can support you when things get challenging that you can circle back to and at least have the conversations with because as you become more successful in your career, it becomes lonelier at the top and it's nice to have those people that you can reach out to and say, you know, I'm having this crisis of, you know, whatever it may be, can you give me advice and, um, and know they're always there for you. That's such great advice, Laura. Thank you so much. And when you are in your 20s, and let's say you haven't yet established who you want to be, you aren't even really sure what industry you want to be in, which is the case for a lot of people in their 20s, how do you find the right mentors? Because often you want to find the right mentor that you know sees your potential or is in your exact industry, but often that is a little bit more challenging in your 20s. So do you have any advice for people who may be wondering about that? So some of it comes down to networking. You know, some of it is, look, I think I'd answer that question very differently. For, and I've come across this a lot, but for communities who are privileged and communities who aren't, right? And so it depends who I'm talking to. There are people out there who come from very connected backgrounds who being able to do mentor, to be able to do internships or to be able to connect with people is a lot easier and then there are those that it's very difficult and so 
it depends who I'm answering the question for. You know, I came from South Africa. Where if you grew up in a shanty town, that's a that's a hard thing to try to figure out who your mentor is, right? And so, I, my kids, one of them went to private school on the Upper East Side, and they have me as a mom, so it's a little easier for them, you know, to be able to network into their mentors or people who can support them in life. It's still not always easy. So privilege plays a part in it. And I, I had an interesting discussion. I have two 19-year-olds and my daughter was looking for an internship. And I've been working with this amazing woman who's doing a lot of work in the area of climate change. She just started her own company. And my daughter was in the UK. And I was like, well, Sarah, you know, she'd love to internship. And she's like, yeah, we have this data company in Oxford. And then she called me back a week later. She's like, Laura, this triggered all the stuff in our company. I'm so grateful for you. And she went to this whole lecture. She's like, I'm sorry, but we can't, you know, bring your daughter as an intern because we don't want to make it feel like it's only, it's a, it's a position of privilege. We want to feel how to make it equitable and accessible. And I was like, Sarah, I'm so glad I was able to trigger that conversation inside your organization because it's a really good point for people who don't have access being able to find their mentors and be able to have these internships is important. And it shouldn't only be a privilege of those people of access. That's such a good perspective. And for the people who maybe grow up in a town where they don't have the connections, they didn't go to private school, maybe they didn't get to go to some big name university and they're just getting started. What would you say is the first step they should take to find their mentors or to network? Well, I'd look back and try to figure out if, there was one person in your life, like a teacher or, you know, at high school, or a teacher at college or somebody you had a, a personal relationship with that is connected in ways that you may not be connected and try to build that rapport with them. When I first got to California, I knew nobody and I landed up volunteering for an organization called Creative Capital that went into the, shan- the, the underprivileged areas and you know, tried to bring experiences to the kids in those areas. I was waiting in line to volunteer and I met my oldest friend who landed up becoming a mentor and we'd walk around the reservoir in LA and she would give me advice on how to ask for money because as a woman, sometimes, especially if you're in your twenties, you don't always feel like you have the tools to be able to say, I need a raise or, so she gave me the tools to be able to talk to um, my bosses about what I wanted and you know, what I needed from the job I was in and how to ask for more money. And, and I met her in a, a, a volunteer line and I know her to this day and we're good friends. So, you know, I grew up as a white privilege in South Africa. When I came to America, I knew nobody. And so it's a function of networking and trying to get out of your bubble, whatever your bubble may be. And so you have to find people who have believed in you along the way, maybe to help you, or you have to step out and do things like volunteer or find ways to break out of that bubble to meet new people. Absolutely. And I love this idea that it can come when you least expect it. It can be, you know, a nice person in the volunteer line with you you clearly share a similar interest and maybe that's the person who will really help open doors for you. I did want to ask you a question. I think a lot of the 20-somethings of today want to create social change, want to impact communities globally. What do you recommend for 20-somethings who are trying to create, you know, global systems change? Do you recommend that they have to go abroad or that they can do the work in America? I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think we're in an extraordinary time. I think there are lots of organizations and there are lots of networks and there's lots of innovation that's focused on social change and driving a more, what we call at BOMA, a more 
intentional and intelligent future, creating a world that is more sustainable, more transparent, more equitable. And so I think you have to figure out at least what vertical or what area or whether it's, based, you know, do you want it to be, do you want to work on something that's a technology solution? Our world, there's so many vectors coming in. We have so many complicated problems right now, and we don't have the technology to solve all those problems. We need a lot more technology. There are a lot of amazing examples of organizations working on the tech solutions. Do you want to tackle it from that perspective? Do you want to work for an organization that is is an, more of an activist organization, sort of like Extinction Rebellion? Do you want to work on an, within an organization that is thinking more about systemic change overall? There are so many different ways you can actually influence where we go right now. And so you've, you've kind of got to figure out what do you want to be in a startup? Do you want to be an activist? Do you want to try and change government? And there are amazing organizations like Apolitical and others that are working with government to try and make, which part of the stakeholder community do you want to be working with in order to make the change happen? So I think you have to start there. And then there are lots of organizations doing it, regardless of where you want to start. I think it's an it's an ongoing struggle to figure out where your place is because there's so many, like you said, there's so many places you can create change. Yeah, but I guess it's based on your background, your education, and then what you're most passionate about. All those are admirable ways of creating impact, but you at least need to know what kind of environment you you think you would thrive in. Right. And, and of course, you decided after all your years of experience and your background that you wanted to start BOMA Global, which was your way of creating the greatest change. What made you decide to, to start BOMA in that way? So I'd spent the last 15 years working for within three other organizations building big global movements. So I founded TEDx, which was a global community of storytellers driving the local change and it was a licensed model and I when I went to Singularity I kind of built on that I wanted to try to figure out how to create a more sustainable model where you could create for-profit products that would help support the volunteer community which TEDx had been and then I went to Women's March to try to figure out how to create structure within a movement that grew up overnight and so it was all an evolution of each other and when I started BOMA, it was more, I have this amazing access to extraordinary people around the world. How could I bring them together in a way that would drive meaningful change? And so that was really the essence of what I started thinking about when I decided to, I reached out to three people that helped me build both, bring both the TED brand to their region of the world and Singularity. And so discussing whether based on you know, my access to a global community that really shared values. Could we build something in the world from the ground up? And, um, I, you know, I'd never been an entrepreneur and I'm not sure I ever saw myself as an entrepreneur. And it was definitely a big leap of faith for me to jump into those shoes. And I felt like it was the moment in time I should do it because I respected all these people all around the world. And finding ways to bring them together because I knew they shared values to drive the change and solve some of these big global problems we had to me felt like it's just something I had to do. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that I had a choice in that moment. And it sounds like, like you said, you took all your past experiences, all your connections and realized you wanted to use them for good. And that was the value you could bring. I'm curious why you decided to create 
a business rather than taking your connections and going to work for another business? Well, I kept building things for other people and then running into the edges of either where their vision ended or the edges of a sandbox or where I was trying to create this sort of more fair and equitable system. And so I sort of felt it was time that I tried to structure something from the ground up where I would have more control of where it ultimately ended up. And so that was the essence of why I decided to build Bomer. You know, I mean, obviously, I didn't think at that point, I didn't know then a year into it, there'd be a global pandemic. But that has definitely created a whole series of other challenges. And um, but at the same time, I think we're at a moment in time where we have these huge global challenges or these vectors coming together. And it's not COVID definitely pointed out how vulnerable and how interconnected we all are. But there's, you know, climate change, geopolitical change, all the issues around social media. Many of them need local inputs that roll up to global solutions in order to make change happen. And we don't have the systems and frameworks to optimize for that yet. And so we need to design a different kind of emergent, agile global system for some of these big global challenges and we need to continue to innovate. And so it felt like an important moment to kind of bring some of my experience to bear. And I brought it to bear for other organizations and also the world's going towards a more decentralized system. So this top down command and control idea of old school companies that, you know, there's a CEO and, you know, and it all rolls up is no longer where we're going. If you look at everything going on with the blockchain and NFTs and how do we leverage this new decentralized system in a way that it also reflects how we as humans show up every day in organizations and um, drive a better world. You know, of course, you had no way of knowing that COVID was going to come, but I think in a lot of ways it ended up benefiting and hopefully will end up benefiting you all because people have a much more broader global perspective. I think especially people in their 20s, often you you just see your local community, you just see maybe your country. But I'm hopeful that as we come out of the pandemic, a lot of the work you're doing to you know create global systems change, people are going to be excited about it and see the importance of it because of COVID and because they yeah. see that, you know, yeah. regardless yeah. of socioeconomic status, regardless of anything, you know, race, religion, we all were affected by this, you know, awful coronavirus. Yeah, I think the part that I'm really excited about is I've definitely, you know, I was at Davos, somebody sponsored me a year ago, and there was a lot of, you know, a bit ago, a lot of, a lot of big TCOs were sort of starting to say the right thing when it comes to how do they pivot to a carbon neutral or net zero future? And yet they had no idea how to get there, but they also were just saying it, right? And I think what COVID has forced is this idea that you need a plan. And a lot of CEOs over the last 18 months have definitely made a commitment to um, being carbon neutral by you know, within the next 15 to 20 years, which isn't that far away. And they do, they are starting to understand that in order to be a successful business, if they don't figure that out, they, or they can't be a successful business if they don't, because they, they, they stakeholders and their employees and 
probably less so their board at this point, are not going to stand by them if they don't pivot to a more inclusive, sustainable, and transparent future. So, you know, I think a lot of them are starting to try to figure out how to be more ESG compliant and what does that mean and um, and are starting to take it more seriously. And the young people that work for them are going to hold them accountable. And I think that's the important part. And their consumers are going to, the young consumers are going to hold them accountable. And so if I can say anything to the audience that's listening, that's younger, like hold them accountable. You know, it's an important moment in time. Well, you heard it right from Laura Stein. Hold them accountable. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for for joining us today. I would love if you could let everyone know where they can follow you and find your exciting businesses that you're working on. Yes, our website is Boma.Global. And my handle on Twitter is Citizen Stein. uh, And I'm on Instagram. And you can follow anything on Boma Global. We have nine country partners. They all have their own social media channels. So Boma France, Boma Germany, Boma Chile, Boma China. Um, You can go to our website and you can see where we are decentralized network. We are learning sharing networks. So each of our individual country partners works on a license and they are definitely innovating at their local level and have their own social channels. So depending on where in the world you are, you can follow them in your local language. Well, thank you again, Laura, for joining us today. It's been so wonderful chatting with you. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram and subscribe, rate and review anywhere you get podcasts. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.